You are listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Our friend Kelly gave you a gift the other night. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Kelly, owner of Mop Top Hair Products. Or curly she, hair. She listens to the podcast. She's a friend of the show and a friend of us in real life. And she said, oh, hey, I got you a gift. She'd been hitting me up like, oh, you got to come get this gift. You got to come get this gift. I got to, next time I see you, I got to get this gift. And she kept asking me like, are you going to be here? Are you going to be there? Are you going to that party? Are you going to this thing? And then finally I was like, look, I'm not going to any of these things, but you say you got me something. So I'm going to like. You were, you were desperate for a free gift. I, well, yeah, I need validation. <laughs> it, so it, I was it, like, it, I need like get this free gift. This is a big moment for me. And so I said, I'll just meet you at this event. I'm not planning on going or staying, but I'll okay. go out there and I'll get it. So I go all the way out there, hour drive, by the way, which yeah. Kelly, uh, is, you know, is probably listening to this feeling really bad, but I think it's hilarious. No, it, it, I'm sure it's worth so it. So I, it I, was worth I, it, I drive, think. I drive out there for, uh, she doesn't know that I'm coming just for this gift, even though I tried to tell her, like, I'm not going for any other reason other than to get this gift. I don't think she understood that. Anyway. I get all the way out there, drive through traffic, whatever. I get there and she's like, okay, I've got this, this bag with tissue paper and everything. It looks like Christmas. And she hands it to me. You know what it is? <laughs> well, a, I do. Cause I saw the it's video. It's a fanny pack that looks like a fat man's belly <laughs> <laughs> with hair and a belly button and everything. And so she knew I like fanny packs. And that's the funniest, it's the funniest thing I've ever been given. I saw the video of it and it looks, yeah, it looks like your fat roll stomach is sticking out yeah. from your shirt. Oh, it's so good. And it makes it funnier that like that I went to, he went to such great lengths to give it to me and I went to such great lengths to get it. I'm like, now I, I actually, now I have to wear it. Yeah, oh, yeah. And I have to. I want you to wear it. It's like, oh, just like, I don't know, like here it is. I'd be like, thanks. I would, now I like, this is like my favorite fanny pack. Thank you for my fanny pack. Uh, Thank you, I will be, just so you know, I will be, uh, proud. we're recording this before Thanksgiving. I'm traveling to DFW to fly to Brownsville, and I will be going through TSA with a fat belly fanny pack today. I'll take a picture of you and we so, can send it to her. Our guest today has nothing to do with fanny packs, not even a fanny pack expert and doesn't even have a fat belly. Jerry O'Brien. After earning his MBA from the University of Michigan, Jerry began his career working in marketing with Procter & Gamble on brands such as Crisco, Tide, Mr. Clean, Spick & Span. Next, he was the brand manager for Coors Light. There, he helped launch innovation that grew the brand by $250 million. He was in vice president of marketing for the $1.5 billion Quiznos restaurant chain. Most recently, he was vice president of marketing for Red Robin a billion dollar brand. He's now a marketing keynote speaker and author with an emphasis on his power of because framework, the missing link to closing sales in crowded competitive markets. He built his career growing big brands and distills this experience into creating strategies that are actionable for smaller businesses all the way up to billion dollar brands. We talked about some really great insights that Jerry brought to the table recognizing the needs of your ideal market and meeting it, turning a brand promise into brand proof, as he calls it, putting your business best kept secrets in place where consumers gain awareness and the power of specificity in your marketing strategy. Stick around. Jerry shares great stories. He has even wiser insights. I'm Sager Smith. As always, I'm with my dad, Sean Smith, and this is Decidedly. Jerry, it's never been easier to be a Coors Light guy this year. <laughs> I, you you are the man behind my favorite business marketing story of all time, I think. What is that? The Coors Light Blue Mountain. The most clever story. I remember you telling me about it several years ago. Like, hey, you know, you ever notice? Yeah. You ever notice how all the beers compete on something and Coors Light competes on the most difficult to compete on <laughs> the <laughs> oldest, <laughs> but it works. I'm like, yeah. 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 Take me back to how you progressed through the industry. Great. So I started out my career in marketing at Procter & Gamble. 
right? So people have heard of Procter & Gamble, huge billion dollar brands. And then uh, I, that's where I really got my foundation in marketing. And what you learn is the framework that billion dollar brands use to stand out in really crowded competitive markets. How do these brands get big and stay big? And then I moved over to Coors Light and we did a lot of work. I'm happy to talk you through all the things we did and how we did it because family business owners of all sizes can learn from the strategies that we used on, on billion dollar brands. And then I went on to become an executive with other, other brands. But what I ultimately did was I said, you know, I'm maybe not the best fit with being a corporate executive. I'd rather be out there in the world taking my framework to business owners of all kinds of all sizes across the board. And so I ultimately, over the last 15 years, distilled down everything that I had learned from my experiences at Procter & Gamble and Coors Light and Red Robin and billion-dollar brands and all my other friends and colleagues who work on these billion-dollar brands. And I distilled it down into the framework of influence that anybody can use in any size business to influence customers to say yes to them, to influence employees to say yes to them, to influence investors, bankers, whoever you need to influence. And so the foundation of the framework was built over years and years of working for billion dollar brands, but it has been honed uh, over 15 years of working with business owners of all sizes to figure out how to be more influential. When do you think did you start to become aware of this concept that you're talking about? It's funny, the very end, and we can talk about my, my book just launched and I've been needing to write this book for a decade, but I'm glad I wrote it now because I've got so much water under the bridge of using the framework. It's packed with case studies. But the opening of the book actually tells the, a good story of how this sort of got started in my brain. So it's I just left Cincinnati from Procter & Gamble and moved to Colorado to work for Coors Brewing Company. And two weeks after I get to Coors, there's this big marketing department offsite. The whole office building is leaving the office to go to this hotel 10 minutes away to go to this all-day marketing meeting. And I'm walking out of the office building and I end up walking out next to the chief marketing officer of Coors Brewing Company. Now, this is my boss's 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 boss, the head of all marketing, $4 billion Coors Brewing Company. I'm walking out next to him and he goes, Hey, Jerry, why don't you ride over there with me? And I'm thinking, yeah, good opportunity to get to know the chief marketing officer. We walk out to his car. It's this big, super sleek, brand new Mercedes Benz. And I'm thinking, yeah, successful. Yeah. Well, then it occurs to me, I got 10 minutes with the chief marketing officer. I better ask him something really smart. So I look smart. So I'm thinking through the questions. What should I ask? What should I ask? I sit down in the front seat of that car. He pulls out. I turn to him and I say, Lee, why is it that a consumer, right? People that give us their money, right? Why is it that a consumer chooses to buy one beer versus another beer? And I'm thinking he's about to give me a 10 minute lesson on how people choose. Sure, yeah. And now right. we, yeah, this is the this is the question, right? <laughs> yeah. This is this yeah, is like what's the most important marketing and sales question of all? Why do consumers choose to buy this beer versus that beer? And I swear, he looks at me and he goes, well, geez, Jerry, if I knew the answer to that question, we'd all be rich. <laughs> I'm thinking, dude, you appear to be rich and yeah. you're the head of marketing for a $4 billion company. You don't know how we influence people to buy this versus that. That's what we, it got stuck in my head. And I'm like, the whole idea of this whole thing is understanding how do we influence people and then using strategies and techniques in order to do that. And we should know how to do that. So I created this framework based on what billion dollar brands do, but then tested with hundreds and hundreds of companies over the years. Uh, so the foundations came from this inspiration of like, well, what really is the formula? So is it that there are things that these brands are doing that they've been doing for so long they're unaware they're even doing anymore? Uh, well, what, 
what's funny is I talk to people that work on big brands and they read my book, they see my framework and they're like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're like, that's, this is, this is kind of what we do. I'm like, I know. Here's the thing. <laughs> Nobody else yeah. knows. We yeah. all, you know, when you're sitting working on a two, $4 billion brand, you think everyone just knows this stuff because everyone you know does know it. I go out and I start talking to CEOs and they think I'm a genius. They're like, Jared, I've never heard of this stuff before. I'm like, wow, we need to find a way to spread this knowledge further, better in a more effective package in a more effective way. And so that's that's really what I've spent the last 15 Do years. Do you think the answer to that that question about, you know, why does somebody buy one beer over another, which is the same as you know, why does somebody buy one issue paper or toilet paper <laughs> over another, was that that this person didn't really know the answer or that the answer is too complex to address in a 10-minute car ride? Well, I could tell you in 10 minutes now, but I've spent 15 yeah. years preparing the answer, in fairness. But no, yeah. I don't know that it's that he he didn't know. I thought probably he was trying to be funny. He was right, like, well, right. you know, I, it's such an unwieldy question. He probably didn't think anything of it. And I mentioned him in the acknowledgments of my book and uh, other people that I worked with at Coors who, uh, I mean, because one of the things that people don't really understand about billion dollar brands. People, real people don't actually understand how these brands are actually managed. What do you mean by that? On the course marketing team, there was probably 30 or 40 or 50 people <laughs> that sat in that department. There were a thousand people that sat at the agency working on behalf of Coors. And so they're very, very uh, complicated products, complicated uh, brands. Um, to manage uh, at all, there, there, there's a lot that goes on that people have no idea that what it takes to do one of these. What do you think is the biggest unknown uh, in beer or in marketing in general? In, in marketing, when you say the the public doesn't understand how they're managed, what what would be the biggest thing that would shock the public or be intriguing to the public? <laughs> It's just the 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 size of them. Like for, people always ask me about the Bud Light example, which really doesn't have anything to do with the framework that I teach about how do we really influence people to buy from us versus others in really crowded markets. But everyone there is doing their best to do their job at what they're supposed to do, right? And when you've got a brand that sells billions and billions of dollars, you've got constituents across every belief, everything, every system, every whatever around the globe. And now in our world where everything can be blown up in an instant based on who knows who's pulling the levers and paying the dollars behind the scenes, right? Someone was doing their best job at their best audience trying to like you know, make Bud Light look good to their niche of people. And it got off the rails because some other niche of people hated them. Well, you got to also stay true to and understand who your core ideal customers are. Now, there's something that every listener can learn from. And this is one of the biggest opportunities for businesses that are not billion dollar businesses, which is who I work with, right? Who are your ideal customers? Who specifically is ideal for you? Who do you really want to target? Because all of us as business owners have people that are really, really the ideal customers we love working with, who make us the most money, who are the easiest to work with, who we have the most expertise for them, who are the most efficient, who have the highest margins for us. We have these ideal customers and many times business owners spend a lot of time focused on customers who are a pain in the butt, who are low margin, and we know they are, but we're afraid to let them go because we don't know how we're going to replace their revenue. So, so you were faced with an with an issue on a similar product with, with Coors Light. Walk me through how you would take a product like that or how you did take a product like that and differentiate that in the marketplace and the decisions you had to make to be successful at that. So there are four parts, and this is great for any business owner of any size. There are four parts of my framework of influence, and they're very easy. The reason people love to use this, that any business owner of any kind 
professional services like you guys or manufacturing restaurants, anything in between, anyone can use this is because there's four parts. Number one, who is your ideal customer? Who specifically is really perfect for you? Who really are you influencing? Number two is what are your insights about them, your, their mindset? What do they want more of? What do they want less of? What do they hope for? And what do they fear? And then the third question is, okay, well, based on those insights, what you know they want more of or less of or what they're frustrated about, what is the promise you're going to make? What is the outcome you as a business owner are going to promise to them? Which, by the way, is the one that we're all really good at. We're really good at figuring out the promise. Hey, work with us. We're going to give you higher quality. We're going to give you better service. We're going to give you better results. We're good at making the promises. The problem is most business owners of all sizes don't finish the sentence of influence. They don't finish the fourth question. Number one, who are you influencing? Two, what are your insights? Three, what's the promise you make? Four, what's your because? What's your proof? What's the proof that you're going to deliver the promise? So those are the four parts of the framework. So if you think about Coors Light, what we did was back then in the early 2000s, all beer advertising was rah, rah, party, party, fun, fun. It's great. Woohoo. You're going to look cool at the party. Like there was nothing to do about the beer. So a bunch of us had come in from other kinds of companies, Procter and Gamble and you know, other consumer companies that weren't in the rah, rah, cool, cool beer industry. And we said, I wonder if you can use the same strategies that you use for, like you guys said, paper towels or shampoo or whatever to sell beer. Well, question one, who are you influencing? Well, the answer isn't actually everybody. And here's why. Because people say, oh, light beer, that's probably good for women or middle-aged middle men or whatever. Okay, women drink 25% of the volume of the beer in the United States. Men drink 75%. So men are a better target. 21 to 24-year-old men drink eight times more light beer than older men because they're very high-volume users. A few nights a week, they're drinking with their buddies, several beers a night. That's your ideal customer, 21 to 24-year-old men. Then we asked a bunch of them, what, what do you care about for light beer? And they said things like, you know, relaxation, low carbs, low calories, great taste, good value, right? Because they're young and funny ads. They really wanted funny ads. And then they said, cold beer. And we're like, really? Cold beer? Like, okay. But then we looked at our competitors and we said, well, Bud Light was already trying to be cool at the party and like socially acceptable, although maybe they've gotten off the rails on that. And then uh, Miller Light was great taste, less filling, low carbs, low calories. So we're left with cold beer. So question number three, what's the promise? The promise is, hey, our beer will be colder. Yeah, no one's going to believe that. And this is the mistake that business owners make. We make this promise, these promises. Hey, buy from us and we'll give you a better experience. And we say these things and they might even be true. Great but service. Our, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. Our brains don't believe it, right? So- when you say something and make a promise, but you don't finish that sentence of influence with the proof, it sounds like fluff. If we came out, listen to this, if we came out and said, hey, buy Coors Light, our beer is colder. Like, well, that is ex extremely like not believable, <laughs> like that extra not believable, right? Right. So you have to finish the sentence of influence. So here's what we did. So this is the thing that I want all of your listeners to learn. Number one, who are you targeting? Who's your real good customers too? What are their insights? What do they care about? You got to understand that. That's the foundation. Based on that, what is the promise you're going to make? And then what's your proof? And of course, like we didn't have very good proof, right? What, what, what are you going to say to make people believe, believe their beer is colder? That's where those innovations that you guys were talking about come in. The first innovation that I rolled out was called the Frost Brew Liner Can. Now, this one comes before the one with the mountains that turn blue. This one is one where inside the aluminum can, there's a blue liner. Well, here's the secret about consumers, audience members, when I speak, they're always like, oh, blue liner. Oh, yeah, that probably, you know what? It insulates the can. I'm like, yeah, or? Or it's blue. 
<laughs> or it's exactly it's blue. Yeah. People are like, what do you mean? I'm like, here's the secret of the frost brew liner can. Every aluminum can ever made has had a liner inside of it because you can't put beer mm-hmm. next to aluminum or it will corrode. We put a clear liner inside the can so the beer didn't touch the aluminum. Yeah. In our case, we turned it blue and we gave it a fancy name. We called it the Coors Light Frost Brew Liner Can. Here's what happened. Flat light beer industry. Nobody could gain any share. We turned our liner blue. The first year we turned it blue, we increased our sales by $100 million. That's amazing. 5% growth. Yeah. 5% growth in cans of Coors Light because it had a blue liner. Yeah. In that saturated market, that's that's massive. And, and that was oh, probably a fairly easy thing to do, You would, I, I would think. Like... like um, on, a, on the production yeah. side. Right. Yeah. The production. Yeah. So we turn the liner blue and here's what, here's the thing, what I'm saying, I want to be clear about this. I'm not suggesting you should be misleading to your customers, but over and over when I work with business owners, like the ones that listen to your podcast, what we find is they already have blue liners. They already have things they're doing that are unique, that are special, that are valuable to the customers. And many times they're their their best kept secrets, right? They're not putting them in the right spot in their sales flow, in their website, in their proposals, and their one-on-one conversations, right? So the blue liner, yeah, it cost us, I forget what the, it was minuscule. And uh we, you should have been there when we went to the the engineers on the can line. We're like, hey, we're from marketing. And they're like, uh-huh, what? He right. <laughs> and we're like, Hey, we got this big idea. Um, so we're going to turn the liner inside the can. We want to turn it blue. And they're like, it's inside the can. No one can even see it in there. What are you people nuts? It's going to have to optimize the lining. There was obsolescence though, because the package, remember guys, the package has to match the cans inside the package, right? Yeah. So yeah. there's all these costs that people don't realize, right? And then we made an incremental 100 million bucks and they're like, what else you guys got, right? And that's when we rolled out more and more and more innovations around cold, culminating with the one where the mountains turn blue when it's cold enough to drink. Ultimately, we made $250 million a year incremental in the business. We actually grew through the onslaught of craft beer when all the other big beer brands were declining. But that framework, every business can use that framework to change how they influence customers. So it's make a promise and then demonstrate why that promise, why they can trust the promise because we do this, because the liner's blue, because the mountain's blue. Yeah. So when you make a promise, oh, our our product is better quality. Notice what your brain does. Your brain goes, well, your product is better quality because? Yeah. And your brain is looking for proof. Whenever you make a promise, someone's brain is looking for proof of the promise. And so many times we don't do it and people don't even realize that they're missing out on it. Are Um, are there some industries where that because communication, right? I I would assume every business is making a promise. Then they have to say the because. Are you finding that some businesses or industries are easier to communicate the because than others? Oh, absolutely. Like you guys work in an industry, uh, like professional services of many kinds are are tough. Accountants, attorneys, financial advisors, I work a ton in these industries because they're really crowded and competitive. And that's my sweet spot. You've got an additional problem where it's highly regulated, right? So you can only yep. legally say certain things. So it narrows your ability to even use becauses at all. Yeah, we can't we can't say we're the best, right? I mean, it's just Yeah, you can't use the word best. Right. It's it's against the rules. Right, right. Yeah. There's 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 all these things you can't say. But and they are starting to adapt your regulations a little bit related to testimonials and things like that, which is an example of proof, an example of becauses. But there are still things that even in industries like yours that you can do, like specificity specificity is a massive opportunity that most companies underutilize. Um, you guys want me to give you a, give you a good example of the yeah, power yeah, yes. of specificity? 
in your industry. So whenever I've got financial advisors in my audience, I always have to joke with them, right? Because it's, you guys work in a really crowded competitive industry. And so picture yourself and I'm asking my audiences this question, right? Picture yourself walking into a party. You walk into a party and you're walking around and you meet somebody and you say, hey, I'm so-and-so, what do you do? And they say, oh, hi, hey, I'm a financial advisor. What do you want yeah. to do? And they're always like, uh, run, <laughs> which is not the reaction that you want when you meet a prospective client. I've got other financial advisors I've worked with. I've worked with tons across, and there's a lot of good answers to this question. Walk into a party, someone meets him. He say, what do you do? He says, I'm a financial advisor, but I only work with very specific kinds of clients. Now, what do you want to know? Well, what kind of clients? I want your listeners to notice that we go from leaning out yeah. to leaning in for no other reason than specificity. I didn't even tell you what they specialize in. And we want yeah. to learn more. Uh, now, in his case, now I've worked with a bunch of these. He only works with self-made millionaires, a very small number of them. He works with them through a unique process during this transitional phase of their life. And now you're thinking, oh, either I am one or do you know what? My aunt just sold her business. She should probably talk to you. We go from wanting to back away to wanting to give referrals because we've narrowed the focus so closely yeah. we can picture someone to make a referral. And it's it's or people who are either in the category or out of the category that have been that has been specified they feel like a a sense of relief cuz they go oh well this guy is not going to try to like he's not coming after me cuz I'm not in the category or that's right. oh he he is but I'm interested because I'm in the category right oh, this and is so nice. think about yeah. what specificity does for you it immediately increases your trust it immediately has you start to picture, do I know anyone that I can make a referral because people naturally want to be helpful? It immediately shortcuts decision-making. If you actually are in that group, you're like, well, boy, they must be smart. They must know a lot of things about me. And the truth is they probably do because they specialize in people yeah. just like you, right? Yeah, absolutely. When you were at Wars, I imagine you have the success with the liner, Heard It Blue. Holy crap, $100 million. You have success with the mountains. Holy crap, another $150 million. What I would have done is just turn everything blue. So was there something that you tried to turn blue and you go, that was stupid, we shouldn't have done that? Uh, no, but what, what we tried to do, we, I mean, uh, just to give you guys an idea, this is an example of like the difference between a real business and like a multi-billion dollar brand. When I do my keynote, I show six examples of things that we rolled out related to cold one was the frost brew liner, the liner in the can. One is a cooler box. It's an 18 pack of plastic bottles with essentially like a blue garbage bag in it. So you can put ice in the box, right? They're 21 year old guys, right? Didn't have to be too genius. Third was super cold draft. Coors Light does not freeze at 32 degrees. It freezes at 27.4 because it's got alcohol in it. So we created a draft system that would pour Coors Light at 29 degrees, poured below freezing. And then we came out with the cold activated bottle, mountains that turn blue, the cold activated can, mountains turn blue. But what people don't realize is of, I guess, is that only five? Those innovations, we created 995 concepts and like less than 10 of them ever made it to the market right? Normal companies don't make a thousand ideas before yeah. a 10 of them make it to the market. So did we try to turn everything blue? We tried that and to every other thing you could ever think of with any promotional idea, any packaging idea, anything. We turned over every single rock and 99% of them uh, didn't work. Uh, even uh, you guys will think this one was funny. Um, we created, because the idea was cold, Coors Light would be colder and more refreshing. We created what we called the smooth pour can. Now, it had a little vent on the side when you crack the can. It had a little vent on the side where the can would open up. Um, 
yeah, it, AKA secret name, uh, the shotgun can, right? Remember yeah. in college yeah. shotgunning beers? We're like, can we create a can that's a shotgun can? Except we couldn't call it that legally, obviously. But like, um, yeah, that one, we actually launched it. You could you could look I at it. Yeah, I remember that. that yeah. So that but, didn't work long term? Yeah, I mean, it was fine. But, you know, did it really pour more smoothly? Well, kind of, yes. Legally, yes, it did. But could you, like, really? Yeah. So was it, is it, it that some of these things people don't really care about or is it that they're not enough of a difference or is it, it it's just really impractical to continue making it well like what's I think the most common that, reason that 995 of them failed or just never made uh, it mostly just people 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 don't care um right okay. because do i really care if it's a smooth pour can i don't know do i really notice a difference i don't know whatever um yeah but the reason like that the the mountains turn blue has lasted, it actually does something really valuable. It seems silly compared to what most business owners do, right? But it's actually useful to know. And if you, you know, pop open a Coors Light where the mountains aren't blue, it actually isn't cold, right? Yeah, like, it, yeah it actually there's nothing works. like grabbing a, a cold can. The can feels cold. You crack it over. Ah, it's not quite cold. Yeah. Not and, quite and there. So, it's the good news is it's dramatically easier for most businesses that operate in real business world in, in my, uh, to come up with innovations. And oh, by the way, almost every company that I work with directly already has tons of becauses. The problem is they don't even realize that they have them. They're not putting them in the right place. They're not saying them in the right way. They're not uh, a listening learning organization where they're coming up with new ones. So most companies already have these things that make them great. And so you don't have to do big, unwieldy innovation projects. And there's a whole section uh, in my book on innovation and the flow and the process you use to do it. But the foundation is listening to your customers and learning from your customers. That's the thing that billion dollar brands do consistently and really well that most smaller businesses don't spend enough time doing. Listening, learning, hearing the frustrations, hearing the wish, I wish this, I wish for that, hearing the what the other person didn't do or listening to your customer about why you lost them and why they went to a competitor. Insights are what drive all innovation and what drive all influence uh, for your customers. So the good news is you don't have to have a thousand ideas. It's good if you got one or two really good ones that your competitors in your market don't do. So the bottom line, this this sounds like storytelling, right? And, and when you look at telling a good story, how are you deciding what story to tell? And then how are you deciding how to tell that story well? It's a good question, right? So Another thing that many business owners, and I ask them about this all the time, they don't do very well, is understanding the landscape of their competition. So I'll do a whole session with a company and we'll come up with becauses. We'll have 20 becauses and we'll have 50 insights and we'll narrow them all down and we'll get the best of the best of the good stuff. And this is where it gets good. You lay it all on and say, this is all the great things that, these are all the great things that make us special. Say, okay, let's get out the competitor analysis that we've already done beforehand. Now, this is where all your listeners should say, huh, maybe I should go do a competitor analysis. What you end up seeing is everything, a lot of these things that companies think make them special, is the same thing your competitors are saying. And any right. of us can do this. We can go out and look at across the landscape, write down all the things from their website or their materials or their video, whatever you can find, put it against yours and figure out where are your gaps, right? Now, here's to answer your question. Here's what you want to do. You want to figure out what are those things that you truly do that are unique from them and are valuable to your customers, right? If it's unique to you and valuable to them and it's... uh now we've got a storyline, right? Now, if you understand who you're influencing, 
the insights, the mindset of the people you're influencing. Now you know what promise to make. Question three, what's the outcome that you're going to promise? And your becauses, now we know that they're unique, valuable, uh, different from your competitors. That's the story I want to tell, right? Now that's not always easy, but if you don't know what your competitors are already saying, I don't know where to start with the story. If I don't know what the insights are of my customers, I don't know where to start the story. You got to understand the components. So those four yeah. things in my framework are the actual framework that we use on billion dollar brands to make TV commercials. And so, so you that's how you the beginning uh, structure of a, a good story, but you got to make sure it's good for you and not for your competitors. What can family business owners do who are sitting here coming up with ideas and they're thinking, well, I can't afford to come up with 995 of them only to find the five blue can ideas. And yep. they go, I, you know, if I had unlimited resources and time, I would try everything I could think of until I found my winners. Well, I don't have all that. So I can run through the process and think through, is it valuable? Is it different? And can I prove it, you know, run through these steps? Well, I yeah. can probably determine whether or not this is a implementable because, right? And go, okay, I can determine on my own without consumer feedback that the blue can definitely turns blue. I can determine through my own research that nobody else is doing the blue can or nobody else is marketing themselves as the cold beer, but I can't figure out on my own that anybody's going to care about the cold or the blue. Yep. So this how comes do I up answer that as a as a business owner without the resources of, you know, course. This is why I I'm so glad you asked me that because this is why I do what I do. Personally, I always thought that that that, that um, corporate America was a little bit over the top with all this stuff anyway, right? Um, but it is complicated to manage these really huge brands. I love working with real businesses that sell real things to real people in crowded competitive markets. Here's the great thing about like real business owners. We actually know our customers. We talk to them. We might yeah. have one-on-one -on -one conversations with them. We might have an email list of all the people that we sell to or have sold to. It just depends on the type of business you're in and the size of business you're in. Like you guys meet with your people one-on-one. -on -one. People that are like a manufacturer or distributor or something, they may have more like email interactions or, or interactions through their sales force. These are all opportunities to get insights, right? So the foundation of all innovation is understanding the mindset of your customers. The key is you need to know what questions you want the answers to. So initially you want to know, well, what do your customers or your prospects want more of or what do they want less of in their life, in their business? What do they hope will happen if they buy from you or buy from your competitor? What do they fear will happen if they buy from you? What do they fear will happen if they buy from your competitor and they don't buy from you? These are all insights. What are their preconceived notions about people in your industry? So those are all, all insights, right? And we get them by talking to our customers, doing surveys, talking to our sales force, giving our sales force questions to ask, feeding that information back into the organization. This gives us the tools and the insights we need to do innovation, right? Then you don't need a thousand innovations. But on all those things that you learn from your customers, come up with a few things. Now, I'm going to give you some ways to do this. Come up with something that would be valuable for your customers that your competitors either can't do because they don't know how to do it, they won't do because they're unwilling to do it because it's hard or it's complicated or it's inefficient. Or something that they just haven't done, like no one's done it this way before. Those are ways you can start to innovate things. Now, let's say you come up with five ideas, 10 ideas, whatever. Now, write those in terms of concepts. Hey, we could deliver you this. We could deliver you this. We could deliver you this. Put them out in front of a few customers. One, is, one of the amazing things we learned at Procter & Gamble while I was there, we got better, deeper feedback and insights from deep dive interviews with individuals than we did with big $30,000 focus groups. And the magic thing is anybody can do it. Any of us can go out and talk to one or two or five customers 
uh, and learn the things we want to learn. So any of us can do it. And so that's a great thing for your listeners is come up with a few new ideas that you think would be really valuable for them that people are your competitors aren't going to do. And then just put it in front of them. Say, hey, we're thinking about doing this or this or this. What do you think? Listen, learn, give them to your sales force, listen, learn, and you will very quickly know which things start to rise to the top. Another thing you can do, I do this with some of my big, super uh, commoditized clients. I do this with the American Institute for Steel Construction. I mean, these people, like they build buildings out of steel, right? We do a think tank where we bring in architects, designers, uh, builders, contractors, and we have a think tank to get into their mindset, to figure out what do they care about? What do they like? What are, what's frustrating them? So you can do that with your business. Bring in some of yeah. your key customers. Spend some some time getting some insights from them. That's a great point. You know, Coors can't just go ask uh, 15 beer drinkers <laughs> and, <laughs> and figure out what's going on. What were some of the mistakes that you made? And, and you know, if you're like me, you probably look back at life and career and say, I don't regret anything, but we went down a road that ultimately wasn't fruitful. Oh, on Coors, we did that all the time. <laughs> yeah. The, you know, there's a great example of one uh, from, this is hilarious, from Miller Lite. So Miller and Coors in North America, you, you guys may know, eventually merged. And so the marketing departments are all in one place. They're different brands, but it's the same people running both the brands. And so they rotate around and whatever. And so they were trying to bring some of this innovative thinking from Coors Light and apply it to Miller Light. And they came up, I don't know if you guys remember this, with this thing called the Vortex bottle. Do you guys remember the Vortex bottle? Oh, yeah. That kind of twisted at the top. Is that, yes. is that the one you're- And yeah. do you remember the idea? This is, I mean, some of this stuff gets to be a bit much, right? Yeah. The idea was that you would drink it and the beer would spin so that, get a load of this, so that it would touch more of your taste buds. No way. Really? <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm like, really? Hey, who knows, right? And that, that actually, I'm, I'm telling you, that was good enough that it made it all the way to the, the actual market, right? Like that wasn't even one that got killed on the chopping block floor. Um, yeah, the ones that get killed, that's probably where the real humor is. And, uh, and right. I, I mean, imagine but, that like the public reaction to these is very difficult to predict because- for example, you talk the the vortex one. I don't know if if I'm walking through the corner store if like that that probably gets me to try it. You know, or really realistically, yeah. it probably gets me to at least try it. Does it make me a loyal customer? I don't know. The um the shotgun type can that you're talking about, right? I remember that one, so it definitely got me at least once. Budweiser when they did their America can back in like 2015. That was the only thing I drank that whole summer. It's like, oh, is that right? I'm drinking America, baby. Heck yeah. <laughs> like that one was just so silly, but it, it it got me. But then other times people like react negatively. Like when Bud Light, um, I don't think they still do this, but they were really proud that they didn't use corn, I think, right? So let's talk about that for a second. This, I, I, I'm so glad you remember that. This almost never comes up. And I have a copy of this ad that I show my audiences sometimes. In the 2018 Super Bowl, I think it was 2018 Super Bowl, they showed this ad. Because sometimes people say, well, Jerry, what about being negative against our competitors? Is that a good idea? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, not really, but like they do it in politics and it works. So I can't say like it doesn't work, right? But this 2018 Super Bowl ad from Bud Light said it was this whole thing about dilly dilly and, and you know, we've got this corn syrup that was delivered. And then they try to, they say, well, we don't use corn syrup. So they try to deliver it to the Coors Light Castle and they try to deliver it to Miller Light Castle because they use corn syrup in their beer. And the whole thing is Bud Light doesn't mm -hmm. use corn syrup. The ad was only shown once on national TV because the Nebraska corn farmers sued them because they didn't like it. But well, it turns out it was found to be misleading because there's actually no corn syrup in beer. It's used in the brewing process to feed the yeast, but it doesn't end up in the final beer oh, product. It's not even, right? You're not even consuming it? 
No, you don't know. There's <laughs> Yeah. And so that's why you've never seen that ad again. Because they they tech it was technically correct yeah. that they don't use corn syrup, but the corn syrup isn't in the product anyway. So they that's threw the whole so thing out. Interesting. Yeah. I remember when that came out, I was in college and I was um an agricultural economics major, believe it or not. And oh wow. I, that, that was the type of conversation, like that was what we were studying at the time was how much corn was being used in um, in just regular popular products. Like they use corn in diapers, Huggies diapers. Oh, no kidding. Corn is in the manufacturing oh. process. It's corn's in everything. And so I had been going to these classes. I'm in like a 400 level class. The professor was a lobbyist for the corn industry. Okay, so he... He kind of changed my opinion. I was a little bit libertarian, like we shouldn't have farm subsidies, man. And, you know, thought Ron Paul was going to like solve that. Um, so that's how delusional I was. But and then he he comes, he goes, a lot of y'all, you know, we're at Texas A&M, conservative, y'all are farm kids, ranch kids in the audience here. Uh, you probably still think farm subsidies are nonsense. Yeah, yeah, government needs to get out. And he, he was like, no, man, this is the... The sovereignty of our nation depends on corn subsidies. Like that's how extreme huh. his opinion was. Anyway, so he kind of like scared all of us into corn's bad. And at the same time, that King Corn documentary comes out, which is scares the entire rest of the country. Hey, corn's really bad and it's in everything. And so when Bud Light came out with that ad, I thought, what genius. Gee, right. I kind of like Bud Light now. Like, yeah, no corn. That's good. We need more. And what was so crazy to me at the time was that that seemed to be the popular sentiment, which probably Bud Light was sensing as well. And they go, hey, this there, we got this documentary. People are talking about this. It's kind of a real issue. That's good for us. Let's jump they on the bandwagon. It, yeah. They put it out there and they got heat for it. I mean, forget the fact that it's misleading in general, but I remember articles of oh, these Bud Light needs to apologize to American farmers in the entire state of Kansas. Like it was, wow. it was really not the reaction that anybody would have expected. Uh, right. Well, but if you look at the framework, right, like of who are you influencing? Okay. Like everybody's watching the Super Bowl, right? What are the insights? Insights are corn is bad. It's in too many things. Corn syrup is bad. High fructose, it's terrible, right? Insights. So you got the insights, right? The outcome is, hey, Bud Light's better for you. That's because... We use no corn syrup, right? Like the framework of influence, they got it right. They, and frankly, my reaction, because I was no longer at Coors Light then, I was watching that Super Bowl ad. And my first reaction was, man, am I glad I'm not the brand manager of Coors Light? I mean, literally the person sitting on the couch next to me. Yeah. Person sitting on the couch next to me goes, I'm never drinking Coors Light again. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. Like- And it's because now all of the flack and the media and all this, great, I understand. The person sitting next to me is like, I'm never drinking that again. Now, remember what we're talking about. How do we influence people to do what we want them to do? They use the exact framework I teach. And the person sitting next to me said, well, I'm never buying that again. They influence that person to change behavior. Now, what you guys are also accurately pointing out is all the other factors that happen in our world around this stuff. The good news in general is smaller family business owners that operate like real businesses don't have to worry as much about massive social media blowback from the broader industry and the who's who of pushing what message through what channels of social world, right? We're just selling real things to real people. And so while it's fun to talk about these big global con, you know, controversial things, we have to know about them. We probably have a little bit more forgiveness in our day-to-day dealing with our customers and our clients and who we're trying to influence. But the framework is the valuable part for everyone who wants to actually be more influential in their day-to-day business. What what would you say is your best decision-making tip from all this? I actually talk about this in the opening of my book. Businesses, if you think about it, and you guys probably do, businesses are nothing but big, 
collections of decisions. That's it. And the companies, the executives, the teams, the families that make the best decisions, they win. Over time, they win. And so my framework of influence is essentially a decision-making model. And the way the companies that actually implement it, the way they use it effectively is everyone in the organization starts to have the same language, the same structure of how do we influence people, which is also the same way of how do we make decisions. And so they use, as a, use it as a filtering method of saying, all right, executive team, here we got enough budget to do one of these three things. Which one should we do? And they run it through the filter. They say, well, who are our customers that we're really trying to get? Who do we need to sell to this year? Well, what do they care about? Why have we talked to them? Do we know the insights from them? Well, what kind of promise are we going to make? Well, are we that much better than anyone else? Those four questions that all of your folks can use actually will lead you to making the best decisions for your company. It's not just an influence framework. It's a decision-making framework that gets everyone on the same page and evaluating decisions in the same way. Thanks for being here, Jerry. I really appreciated it. We learned something. Where can people find you, connect with the work you're doing, and get a copy of your book? The book, and I've actually got a copy of it here somewhere, is called They Buy Your Because. And the, my website is whatbigbrandsknow.com. And the website for the book is theybuyyourbecause.com. And if you want to connect with me on LinkedIn, the last name is O'Brien with an O-N, O-B-R-I-O-N. Anybody ever tell you you spelled both of them wrong first and last? <laughs> I know. They are spelled. And in fact, when I went to Ireland, I was like, I'm Irish. They're like, no, no, that's not Irish. That's just a, an English misspelling. You're not Irish at all. That's what they told me. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Thanks, man. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity to be on. Hey, it was great talking to you. Yeah, you too. My takeaway from talking with Jerry is when you look at his framework about who you're trying to talk to, finding out what they care about, what your promise is, and how you justify that or your proof source on that. So many businesses don't walk through that framework. And it just takes a minute to think about the answers to those four questions and crafting that message so that it's it's out there, basically figuring out what is my story I'm trying to tell, and then working on how to tell that story. And I think so many businesses work on the how first. My takeaway is once you find the why, you have to be able to prove it. And that's the power of the because that Jerry talked about. So having a why that's distinct, it's different and valuable, but then also being able to prove it with a because. And that gave me a lot to think about. You just made a great decision to listen to this episode of Decidedly. Make another great decision and leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support. It helps others find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. For more daily decision-making insights, check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Thanks again for listening. I'm Sanger Smith, and this is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly Podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes not personalized advice.